Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Mark Hummel's Harmonica Party. I'm sitting here with uh, a legendary harmonic icon. He's been doing this for many, many years. I've known Charlie since the 70s, and I'm proud to have him on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Nice to be here. <laughs> Charlie is somebody that... Uh, was was born in Mississippi, but you moved to Memphis when you were three? Yeah, uh, was going to Memphis is hardly like leaving Mississippi. It's just over the state line. It's over I spent my summers in Kosciuszko with my grandparents. And so what was Memphis like growing up as a kid? It was, back then, it was just kind of like a big country town. Now it's like this really cosmopolitan, I can't even hardly find my way around. A lot of the, Places I used to go and little bars and things, they're all gone. Neighborhoods are, they might be there, but it's not the same. And it's just a different place in most ways. I mean, like Beale Street back then was a real neighborhood, and I knew a lot of people that lived around there. And there were cafes and pawn shops, and it was really a colorful, exciting place. Now it's just a tourist trap. Yeah, it's just tourist And Memphis would have completely obliterated it. Well, they were in the they were in the middle of completely obliterating Beale Street when they realized they couldn't make money with it as a tourist trap. I always say Memphis has torn down more history than most American cities have. They LA might to, be a close second. They love to tear stuff down. Yeah. And somebody told me that a lot of the people in the city government are in construction, so they, wow. they make money tearing stuff down and building stuff. Like the Stax Museum. Right. It, the, the place was there. Right. They could have fixed it up. They leveled it and then <laughs> built a facsimile of the building that was already there. That is so incredible. That's typical Memphis. Oh, they don't call God. it Bluff City for nothing. They don't call it what? Bluff City <laughs> for nothing. <laughs> There's plenty of bluffing going on. But I love Memphis, and I had a lot of good times growing up there, and a lot of good friends. And it's just not, you know, when I when I go to Memphis now, I see ghosts. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing uh, that you turned me on to a while back was uh, the Tav Falco book, uh, the Behind the Sun. Yeah, that's a great book. That is a great book, and it just opened my eyes to what kind of, uh, you know, the plethora of music that was out there. It really kind of paints a picture of more of the Memphis that I knew. I was a little right. before what he's writing about, but yeah. it's closer to what it was like. And speaking of Ghost of Memphis, I, I recorded a tune with Al Capone, the rapper from Memphis. Really? Uh, about the Ghost of Memphis. And I, I sang some verses and he does a little short rap about Ghost of Memphis. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's very cool. It'll come out maybe in a year or so. Yeah. 
Well, I, to me, it was like the amazing kind of uh, mixture of rockabilly, country, blues, gospel. rock and roll. Lots of gospel. Yeah, lots of gospel. I mean, it was yeah, really Memphis is, in my opinion, the best gospel radio. Uh, not only did they play records, but they would play uh, tapes of services that they had made, you know, where they're really rocking the place. And I used to go to tent meetings in the, wow. in the summertime. They'd roll up the sides of the tent, so it's just a top, and I could drive up next to the tent and watch the whole service. And that's amazing. And listen to the music and drink cold beer. Right, that's amazing. <laughs> and it, uh, interestingly, they were mostly black, but they would be mixed. There'd be white people in there too, rocking. I mean, speaking in tongues and rolling on the ground and going into convulsions. I mean, it was, and the music is like trance music. Yeah. They get a tune going and it would just go and go and it just kept, people would go into trances. Kind of like the hill music. The blue hill. Well, except way more uh, hypnotic. And, right, and, right. Uh, with way more energy or something. I mean, yeah. It was powerful. What an experience. I wish I had an iPhone back then to record some. I wonder if there's recordings of a lot of those. I don't know it could be, but yeah. it's something to experience live, just to be right there watching. Yeah. I love, I love, still love gospel music. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's Especially very... the old gospel music today is like pop music. I can't stand it. Well, it's like country music yeah. back then. Real and formula. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I went to a I forget what city I was in. I saw they were having a gospel concert. And I thought, oh, this could be great. And I went there. Oh, man. More, it wasn't really, it was a, it was a, like a fashion show. More than <laughs> the music was like, took second place. Yeah. And it was people going, oh, 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 oh. All these, I mean. Opera it, singing. It wasn't yeah. a yeah. drop of grease. And right. It, it was just so disappointing. I can imagine. It's just real theatrical baloney. Well, there's a definite reason why Elvis, I think, came out of Memphis in terms of just the mixture of what he... What he was exposed to. Right, what he was exposed to. Yeah. And you mentioned Rockabilly. Johnny and Dorsey Burnett lived across the street. Right, exactly. I used to go over there and... uh, And you said they were adults when they were with the press. Well, they were probably in their 20s. In their 20s, right. I remember uh, one day I was over there and I noticed their <clears throat> eyes were real red. I'd never seen anybody with bloodshot eyes. And later when I went home, I told my mom, I said, uh, them boys across the street, their eyes are all red. She said, well, I guess they've been doing a little drinking. <laughs> but How old were you? Oh, Teens? No, I was like, I don't know. I, six or seven or something. They, I remember they had a steel guitar usually set up in the living room. They showed me how to go, you know, wolf whistle. Oh, okay. Put the slide. <laughs> and they thought it was real funny to see me do that. That's great. Yeah, I mean, they're another example of, you know, like Elvis that had so much R&B and blues and what they did. There was another guy named Slim Rhodes. He lived about three blocks away. He had a house on the corner. And he would have uh, barbecues and invite all the neighborhood. And he'd stand out there with his big white cowboy hat and play his guitar and sing. And his brother was Speck Rose. He, 
he was like a comedian. He'd wear a, like a checkered suit and have one tooth blacked out and some little beanie kind of hat and play the upright bass. I used to see these cars, people come to visit them, these guys and convertibles, you know, like a 19, I don't know, real flashy looking cars with a lot of chrome and white walls and guys dressed with real rockabilly clothes. Right. I don't know who they were, but they, they, huh. I'm sure they were somebody in the rockabilly field stopping right. to visit them. Well, there was another guy you already told me about that you knew in Memphis uh, who was a rockabilly singer. I can't remember. Was it My Gal is Red Hot? Was that who oh, it was? Billy Lee Riley. Billy Lee Riley. Yeah. And Charlie Feathers. Charlie yeah, Feathers. didn't you know both those guys? I didn't know Charlie. I, I've seen him, but... Uh, and Charlie Steve. Feathers couldn't read or write. And he learned guitar from uh, Junior Kimbrough. What a trip, man. Yeah. I never heard that. Yeah. He was from wow. down there, around there, around Holly Springs. Now, did you know Jim Dickinson at all? Well, we did a whole lot of recording. It came out on two albums. That was his studio in Coldwater, Mississippi. Yeah. It trips me out how, how so many people came out of the Memphis area and became fairly, you know, popular people. You know. Uh, next door to me, when I lived in Memphis, was Jimmy Griffin. His name was, and he later had a band called Bread. In the oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. And he was real friends with the Burnettes, and they got him into recording out in California. He, Too much. On their advice, he went out after they were already out in California. And he went out and they got into recording some stuff and he got into the business through them. I never thought about getting in the business. I did just, you I, did you get to know him a little bit? Through Jimmy? Yeah. Oh, he was a real good friend. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. We stayed in touch up until he died. Wow. He was living in Nashville when he died. Yeah. He had a throat cancer or lung cancer. That's sad, man. Yeah, we were... Just little kids together playing up and down the street and out in the woods. Right. And I think you were saying that a lot of your, you know, friends back then were were both uh, African-American kids and, and white kids. It was really yeah, well, it was a, yeah. it, I, we lived on a dead-end street, and then after the dead end, it was woods, and then there was a creek. And on the other side of the creek was a black neighborhood. Right. And uh, back then, we didn't have air conditioning or nothing in there. The coolest place to go was down by the creek. Right. And jump in the water. And, and uh, so the black kids from the other side, they'd be down there too. We just, we'd have a hell of a good time. Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. You know, just playing in the water. And yeah. I just remember laughing, laughing and laughing and laughing. That's great. That's beautiful. <laughs> they were great days. Yeah. Sounds As like a kid, you don't really realize. No, you don't, how, don't realize how great the difference. Is. Yeah. It's just, yeah. You're just being a kid. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's what I've always thought about, you know, the whole race thing is that if you grew up around, you know, I mean, I grew up around black kids and, and Mexican-American kids, and it was like, you don't even think about it at the time. It's well, not something you're aware of until later. When we were in Mississippi, uh, my dad was in the Navy, and he was gone, uh, and my mom was in civil service, and she was working in like New York City, she lived in Queens for a while, in Philadelphia, and someplace in New Jersey, and they were, so they were gone. And uh, they left me with Velma, my, they called her a nurse. She was my other mother, hmm. black lady. And I stayed in touch with her until she died. I remember my mom said she'd come home and she'd want to cook for me. 
And I said, no, I want Belmont's cooking. <laughs> she said that hurt her feelings, but yeah. Belma could cook. Yeah, my mom had a very similar story because she grew up in Indianapolis and had uh, a caretaker that was that was black and, and raised both of her and her brother here. It was kind of a thing back then, I think. It's interesting. I never thought about it at the time, but my grandparents lived just down the street, but I didn't stay with them. I stayed with Belma. Right. Wow. Maybe they were busy. I don't know. Yeah. I remember another great story you told me was about uh, uh, when Elvis would shut, like open up the movie theater or something for everybody or the amusement park. He would have parties. Right. They always started at midnight and went to dawn. Right. And he would rent like the entire fairgrounds. Right. All the rides would be free. Hot dogs and hamburgers and Cokes are all free. And just roam around and ride all That's these awesome. rides. And I had Elvis's phone number. I could call up and find wow. out where the where the party was going to be. That's crazy. Or he had rent a theater. It's called back then. It was called the Memphian. It's still there, but I don't know the current name of it. Yeah. And he would. Uh, I think it's on Cleveland. He would rent that and have a couple of the latest movies and a whole bunch of Roadrunner cartoons. Elvis loved the Roadrunner. You know, I'd see him there at the fairgrounds and, or skating rink he'd rent sometimes. Hmm. I never really had a conversation with him. We would speak, you know, hey man, or something like that. But Sounds like he was very kind of welcoming to all the community, basically. Well, it wasn't all the community. You, had to, you couldn't just walk in there. You had to be a guest. So how did that work? How did you become a guest to something like that? Well, I knew guys that were on the... The security team. We oh, went to school okay. together. All right. You know, they see me as he was waving me in. Right. And I don't remember how I got his phone number, but that's how I would always know where the party was. Wow. That's <laughs> it wild. wasn't an ad in the paper or nothing. Yeah. Now, the other thing I wanted to get into is how you got into blues. I like different kinds of music, and I listen to the radio a lot, but and I really love gospel. But when I would go down to that creek, where the coolest place I could find, I'd often just be laying there in the, on the shady side, and uh, there were some fields along the creek and up above me there. And people would be working there in the fields singing work songs or blues, or you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would be laying there and listening to that, and yeah, that music would just wrap itself around me, hmm. and uh, it was my comforter. Yeah, and it. That music sounded like how I felt, mm -hmm. and I was really drawn to. Even though I liked a lot of other music, that to me was more than music. It was my kind of your home. I was a kind of a lonely kid. Cause I had no right. brothers or sisters, and my mom, she'd leave in the morning when it was dark and didn't get home until after dark. She took three buses to and three buses from work. Wow! So. Uh, and I remember hearing over here people telling my mom, he's alone too much. Mm. And uh, But I didn't mind. But I yeah. was alone a lot. So um, I don't know that I felt alone. But, I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I remember, you know, you'd hear a certain whistle or, or somebody call their kids to come home for dinner or something. Nobody ever called me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and everybody would go home and I'd be a, yeah. Uh, you're kind of twiddling. So, yeah. so blues was uh, 
I guess for that reason, it meant something to me. Yeah. Like I say, it sounded like how I felt. So that's why I was really attracted to it. Uh, later on, when I met Furry Lewis, he taught me Spanish and, and I knew Will Shade. And... Now, did Will Shade play guitar as well as Hart? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, he, was, he was a pretty big influence on you, right? Yeah, and he was... I got to spend a lot of time just sitting around, just with him talking. We'd always be drinking. Golden yeah. Harvest Sherry wine. And guys would just drop by all the time because they still remember him as being this uh, a big man in music. You know, he had yeah. the Memphis Jug Band and they, right. they made, I don't know, hundreds, I guess, of records and right. were well-known and well-respected. And of course, at this time, he's really down on his luck. Him and Jenny May, it was always jam sessions and just meeting people. And, yeah. And again, I didn't know where this was going. I just loved the music and, you know, guys like Will and Furry were really flattered that I would seek them out, right? spend time with them. And they were eager to teach me. They, those, nobody my age, black or white, were coming right. to see them right. or had any interest in their music. So here's somebody that's interested in them and their music. And sure. Uh, really kind of them passing it on encouraging yeah. me and uh, I often say you know I didn't know at the time I was preparing myself for a career I'd have paid a lot more attention right. <laughs> I was just having fun I just loved yeah. the music yeah. and I just had to play it just had to but I didn't have any dream or goal about being on stage and in the spotlight or right. that, that never crossed my mind I just wanted to play it it all happened a lot, a lot later than. That's after I got to Chicago. Right, by the time you get to. Let's move on to Chicago. Let me take a break here. We'll be right back. We left off yesterday talking about Charlie's move to Chicago when he was a teenager. You were, I think we said 18 or 19, something 18. Like that. Well, the idea was to go just looking for a job. I had no idea that there was a big blue scene in Chicago. Uh, I had been told once that anybody in the entertainment business, they either lived in New York City or Hollywood. And um, I had met Muddy in Memphis and I'd met Jimmy Reed in Memphis and I knew they lived in Chicago, but I still didn't put it in my head that there was a scene, a blue scene in Chicago. I just didn't know. To me, it was just a big city up north that had a lot of factories. That's all I knew about it. And that's why we went up there. Me and an old boy named Garen Turner. He had a car and we drove up there. We looked around for work. Every day we'd take off looking on our own. We was there for a week. Uh, he was gonna go back. We were both gonna go back to Memphis because we didn't find any work. But it was a Sunday and I thought, I'm just gonna take a look around and see what I can see this last day. And I passed a little store and as I walked by, I thought, did I just see a help wanted sign in that front of that store? And I think there was a light on back there. So I went back. Sure enough, this guy, his name was Harry Zimmer. Uh, he sprayed for roaches and things. And uh, I went in there and he said, yeah, I'll be here Monday morning. He taught me how to make pigeon traps to put on tops of buildings. And I drove him all over Chicago, which was great because I 
You have to learn the whole city right away. But uh, I would pass these clubs. Like, i never forget going down 43rd Street, passing Pepper's Lounge with that, that big painting on the window of Muddy Waters. And wow, Muddy Waters. <laughs> Man, this is... And I saw signs for Elmore James. I couldn't believe all these... My heroes were they're all there. And uh, This was 1963? Two, 1962. Okay. And uh, once you find out one of the two of these clubs, you discover the whole scene. I mean, the people in these clubs, you talk to people, you're socializing and drinking. They tell you about, oh, yeah, you ought to check out this club and that club. And, and so-and-so is playing over there. You just... The whole scene was re revealed to me pretty quickly. And I, at night, I'm going to all these clubs, and, and there's so many to pick from. Who do I want to listen to tonight? Buddy, Wolf, Sonny Boy. Otis Rush. Yeah, I mean, the, just, the list was so long. And at Pepper's Lounge, I, I remember it was a Monday or a Tuesday night. You could get in for 50 cents. You got a ticket. You went, you went in to the club with the ticket, you get a free beer with the ticket. Uh, so you got in and a free beer for 50 cents, and you can listen to Monday till four in the morning. It's amazing. And who and, was in the band? Was that with Cotton? Yeah, Cotton and Span. I don't remember who all. Earlier on, when I had been looking for gigs, I had stumbled across the Jazz Record Mart, and it was closed. They didn't open till 11 a.m., and I was there early. But here was this record shop with all these blues records in the window. I thought, damn, this is really something. Uh, and I came back one night. They were open late and met Bob Kester and Pete Welding. They told me about a lot of other different kind of clubs. There were these little folk clubs where Jimmy Brewer would play. And uh, they were guys that played on Maxwell Street, little solo kind of gigs. Right. And Big Joe Williams was living there in the basement. Yeah. So that's where I started. I said I got a gig working at the record shop. Uh, you guys packing, were packing records? Packing records yeah. to send out, you know, mail order stuff. And uh, I had a cot down there with Joe, and we lived in the basement. And that was great. We would sit up all hours of the night, him telling me all these stories. I wish to God I'd written them down. I didn't. You know, today people talk about journaling and everything. Right. I never even thought of. I was too young to right. think about right. these things. Yeah, you don't think it's going to change. Yeah. I was just having fun, and I had no idea that there was a career in music in my future. Right. I, none at all. I had never dreamed about it or had a goal. Or yeah. I was already playing guitar and harmonica when I got to Chicago and sitting up with Joe all night drinking beer and playing songs together and I mean stories about hoodoo and right. different guys he knew and a lot of those stories would end it'd be this crazy story that happened somewhere and then at the end he'd say I was just I left that town had my guitar on my back and my hat turned around backwards <laughs> and I went on down the road and that's yeah. kind of his, that was sort of his lifestyle pretty much. Was he was just a hobo, a, basically. He was a, yeah. one of the last of the itinerant right. uh, blues, blues yeah. guys of, the, yeah. of Mississippi. Yeah. Honey Boy, I guess, was like that pretty much too. Well, right? Honey, Honey Boy, Boy always talked about, uh, yeah, I, you know, uh, 
Big Joe was one of the first one took me on the road, and and he took he was the first one to take Charlie on the road. Charlie from Kosciuszko. Honey boys thought we had something in common. That yeah. Joe was the first one to kind of get us right, get going. you started. Yeah. Because Joe yeah. would take me to play with him at some of these little folk clubs and things. We went to see Lightning. Right. Uh, uh, we knew JV was playing, but he played in Chicago all the time. Right. And Joe wanted to see Lightning, and we drove over there. As far as blues clubs go, this was really a big room, and JV was up there with his zebra stripe. Uh, tails, right, and coat, right. and jumping up and down yeah. with the horn section, and right. had the audience. Everybody's dancing, and and Joe and Lightning and I are sitting at a table with Mabel John for some reason. Wow. She was there too. The four Whoa. of us were at this table. Yeah, and I remember thinking, looking around, and seeing how everybody's dancing, and thinking, you know, Lightning's supposed to follow this. I wonder how the crowd's going to react to that. You know, because according Compared to Lightning, JB was sort of an urban, right. you know, uptown right. kind of guy. Well, when JB was done playing, I, I can still see Lightning walking up the steps to the stage with his black suit and the white socks. I can see right. his, and his shades on. And he sat down. Whoa. <clears throat> Lightning started playing, and in just a few minutes, I don't think anybody remembered J.B. <laughs> Lightning had that place in the palm of his hand. That is heavy. People were dancing. I mean, yeah. he rocked that place. Yeah, that's so great. It was so great. It yeah. was unbelievable. Yeah. Now, how did you meet Mike Bloomfield? Was that a jazz record mark. He would yeah. come in, and we got to talking, became friends. And he, later on, uh, after I beat up Bob Kester and lost that job, <laughs> I remember crossing the street heading to Old Town where my friend Bill Chavers had another record shop. And as I'm crossing the street, Bob's in the doorway shaking his fist saying, I'll never pay you the money I owe you. <laughs> what a legacy. <laughs> so, and when this happened with Bob, Big Joe had been out of town. When he came back to town, found out, and Joe really, he really hated Bob. <laughs> <laughs> they would fight all the time. It's life of living hell. Great. So when he found out I'd moved over to Bill Shaver's place, Joe packed up and came yeah, he was gone. Yeah. And he took one of the other rooms back there. So it was Bill Shaver's, Big Joe, and I in this living in rooms behind the old Wells record shop. At that time, when I moved there, it was sort of an artist colony. There were poets and and sculptors and authors and musicians hmm, and cool. painters and it was real cheap uh, rent and stuff like that. this is like the that. north side? Yeah, it's called Old Town. Old Town, right. And it was a mixture of Puerto Rican and black and maybe some Mexican and hillbillies. Yeah. <laughs> Down the street was a little bar, a little neighborhood bar called Big John's. Right. And one time, I think it was the 4th of July, they asked Joe if he'd come down. They thought Joe was a, a folk singer or something. Ah, okay. They didn't really yeah. know what they were getting into. Yeah. They hired Joe to come down and play the 4th of July at their bar. They didn't usually have music. Right. And Joe asked me to come play with him. And, um, I did that. And they sold so many drinks that night, and, and everybody enjoyed the music. They said, come on back tomorrow night. And, Next night, come on, just keep coming. We just had a regular gig. So basically, you guys were the first ones at Big John. 
We were. Before Bloomfield and... Before anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, and they were doing great business. It just kept yeah. getting bigger and bigger. more and more right. people were coming. Uh, and it was really the breakout of blues from the south side to the north side. Well, at this point, I mean, there were other little, there was a club called Mother Blues. Right, right. And um, the, the Blind Pig, and they right. were like folk clubs. Right. And, but this was a bar. Yeah. And uh, people were dancing, and uh, I mean, Joe really, he held the crowd and really kept people dancing. And Yeah. Well, after a while, Mike started hanging around, and there was an upright piano there, and he asked Joe if he could play piano. Right. Joe said, yeah, sure. So then it was me and Joe and Michael and piano. Right. After a while, Joe Joe often had to go take off somewhere. Right. He'd go to Wichita Falls or Omaha right. or back down Always to Mississippi yeah. or something or Indianapolis. Or, right. So he had to take off for some reason. When he left, uh, we got a drummer and a bass player and we had a band right. to keep the gig going. And I think we only played four nights a week. We said, you know, all, all these off nights, you should be booking in other bands from the South Side, like right. Buddy. And I remember seeing Little Walter there. And yeah. Everybody. Buddy and Junior, did they play there? I don't know. He probably did. I don't remember them, though. Hmm. But so we told Whitlocker who to get a I think right. Mike even got a hold of him. He, he might have yeah. been instrumental in actually booking it. Right. So now, Big John's had live blues every night of the week. Yeah. Other clubs on the north side started seeing the great business Big John's was doing, and they wanted to have their blues clubs right. too, because these were bigger rooms than the small right, the blues taverns clubs the, on the south, the south side, side. Yeah. so they could pay more. Right. Plus, a lot of the people on the north side were afraid to go to the south side. Right. They didn't want right. to. They were interested in blues, yeah. wanted to hear it, but they didn't want to go to the south side. And I heard and, that Big John's was a very esoteric kind of bar. I mean, you had everybody in there. You had, you know, like you say, poets and politicians and gangsters and just, oh yeah, you know, I, students I remember, and just everybody. Well, a lot of all kinds of artistic types. Right, you know? right. Well, the neighborhood was like that anyhow. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was quite a crew in there. Yeah. And uh, so and then... More and more bars on the north side are hiring. They could pay better, and and the whole blues scene just flipped over to the north side right. pretty much. I, I remember, think Bloomfield had something to do with the Fickle Pickle booking. Yeah, that was another yeah. folk club. That was right. on Rush Street, right. and that's where I first met Johnny Winter. Oh, really? Uh, wow. We were, uh, uh, you know, Mike would have Blind John Davis come in, right? Or, Johnny Jones, right. or Billy Boy, yeah. and, right. and Big Joe. And, yeah. Uh, one night we're in there, and this guy comes in. And he's wearing a sport coat and a tie, and has a big pompadour. It's Johnny Winter. Wow. Because he was playing some rock club. Right. That's what I heard. Down the yeah. street, he had a night off, and he yeah. came in, and uh, we all hit it off. Had a great time, and right. was on stage there at the Fickle Pickle jamming. Right. Fickle Pickle was just a they didn't even serve alcohol. They served, I don't know, apple juice or something. Yeah, you know, right. It was a little folk club. Sleepy John Estes would play there, Yank Rachel, Hammy Nixon. and So that was a, just another one of those folk clubs. And did you work with uh, J.B. Hutto some at all? J.B. Hutto and I and Johnny Young would go on the road. We'd take the Greyhound. We'd meet downtown at the bus station and take the Greyhound to 
different wow. places to play. Crazy. Just the three of us. Also, a drummer named Wild Bill. He would go with us. Huh. Drums, two guitars, and myself. Wow. And uh, <laughs> now, how did you meet Big Walter? You must have met Big Walter through like uh, Honey Boy and guys like that. Right? I'd already known about Walter from Will Shade because. Oh, okay. Because he, he said he uh, yeah. gave Walter tips on harmonicas. Wow. And it, Walter was always hanging around him trying to get free harmonicas from him to give him, give him one of your old harmonicas. Wow. Something and so I, you know, here I got to learn from Will Shea, and then I'm in Chicago, and I get to learn from Big Walter. Yeah, we yeah. call him Shaky. Yeah, Shaky. Yeah. Uh, on record, he was Big Walter, but everybody knew him called him Shaky. And there was a club I was playing with Johnny Young and Floyd Jones called Rose and Kelly's, and Shaky lived just down the street, so he was there all the time. Yeah. And Kerry Bell and Good Rock and Charles, and uh, but one night. Walter, he would always have some new little trick to lay on everybody, you know. We'd all take turns. We'd stand shoulder to shoulder right. and pass the same mic and the same heart one to the other. <laughs> Pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah. It was a friendly competition. We yeah. were just having fun. Yeah. And then Shaggy would come up and just wipe us all out. Yeah. Well, one night he had two harmonicas back to back. Right. And I could recognize, I knew we were in the key of A, I recognized he was playing second position on a D harp. And then he'd do this big flourish and turn them <laughs> over and started playing something else that didn't, I'd never heard these patterns before. Right. And when he got through, I said, Walter, what's that other harp? And he showed me it was a C harp. He was right. playing in the key of A right. on a C harp. I'd never heard of such a thing. A weaker position. So, yeah, fourth position. Yeah. A couple of weeks later, I saw Little Walter on 63rd Street. And I said, man, I never, I never saw this before. Shaky was playing in the key of A on a C harmonica. Right. And uh, Little Walter always had a habit of doing his shoulders like that. And he said, oh, that ain't nothing. You can play in <laughs> E on a C harmonica, too. <laughs> wow, E on a C harmonica. Right, right. So uh, then I got to thinking, well, I guess any octave you can find has got to be a, a pattern, a way to get back and forth and be playing in that key. That was so these I, kind of, these guys in a way sort of hipped you to the kind of music some of the your start on getting hip to music theory. In yeah, a sense. Yeah, yeah, because the, uh, up until that point, I never heard anybody just say anything other than first, second, third. I just right. figured that was it. I didn't know it. Right, but when I Fourth and fifth, wow, this made me start really thinking about yeah. what's really there, yeah. what's available. And uh, even if you don't use those other positions, just knowing about these patterns is helpful in your own improvisations. And right. You need a mental picture because it's the only instrument you can't watch right. the fingers being used yeah. or how, how it's being played. Yeah. So having a strong mental picture and any way you can add to that yeah. it helps you navigate. The, and we're playing by ear. Yeah. You know, we're all playing by ear. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I always tell people you really should learn by ear first and then start learning theory and all that yeah. stuff because that's where you get the heart. So you had a hell of an education in Chicago, man, from all these guys. Yeah. And you and Span, I know, were real tight. We were really close. Yeah. And, we, yeah. and the Myers we, brothers worked with me. Me and Span would pick up 
ladies and after the you know peppers close at four we go to these hotels and rent one room and flip a coin and see who got the mattress and who got the springs <laughs> which they would share one room with these yeah, ladies crazy and yeah. and at Peppers, I, I wouldn't, you know, none of these place, places was I, before all this started happening when I was working, and I, I was just hanging out and socializing, and since I came from Memphis, I already knew how to drink. Right. I wasn't going around holding up a harmonica or saying, right. can I sit in, or, I just, I didn't think I was good enough, and I didn't think, I didn't, it never occurred to me that I could do anything, and, right. and when he, these were grown Man, these were right. I was a fucking teenager. Yeah, you were a teenager. And, but this waitress I got to know right. well named Mary, she at Peppers. Yeah, she yeah. said to Muddy, I heard her say, You ought to hear Charlie play harmonica. And Muddy's like, Charlie plays harmonica. Now he knew me because he thought I was a sure. fan. Right. So I'd, I'd talk to him, I'd request tunes, and he'd say, How do you know that tune? Right. I got the record. The record know? point. It's only 78. Yeah. And uh, it tickled him because I knew his old tune. Right. Anyhow, when he found out I played, he insisted I sit in. Right. Which wasn't unusual because sit, there was a lot of sitting in going on. I mean, yeah. muddy like because it was such a long gig. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. four in the five in the morning right. on Saturday night. That's seven, eight gigs of sets a night. Yeah. And he got to hear a lot of. That's where I met uh, met Robert Nighthawk too. Anyhow, I'm getting off the subject, but uh, when he when Muddy called me up to sit in. The only thing unusual about it was how young I was and that I was white. Right. But other musicians saw me playing with Muddy and started offering me gigs. And I said, wow, you gonna pay me? <laughs> that got me focused. Yeah. And that's when yeah. I started working with Johnny Young and right. Floyd and all those yeah. guys. And, yeah. And that was my ticket out of the factory. Yeah, that's and, an amazing story, man. So and here we are. This is part one yeah. of our interview with Charlie, and I'm going to try to continue this in about a uh, a few weeks, and 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 we'll get together again and kind of go on from here because just scratching uh, the surface. Yes, Charlie has a long illustrious history, and it's one that I love to hear him talk about. And it's just getting started, and you're just getting started. So <laughs> my story's just getting started. Well, no, man, you got you have so much history; it just blows me out of the water, man. Well, thank you, Charlie. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll continue this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is your partner, Big Boy, interested in giving back to your community while making new connections in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network that empowers you to take action, contribute to local needs, and be a part of something bigger than yourself. Visit caneighbors.com to learn more about how you can get to know your neighbor and strengthen your community. Neighbor to Neighbor, it takes a neighborhood. Hello.